Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, how are you? Good to have you aboard. Uh, i got to tell you, I'm excited about uh, the show. Coming up in uh, just a few moments, we'll be joined by uh, a British enigmatologist, uh, Nick Redfern, who writes about uh, unexplained mysteries and this weird planet, uh, it is a weird planet, and he's going to share uh, twenty. Uh, some of the his latest book is called uh, "The Weirdest Places" or "The World's Weirdest Places." Uh, I think I have that correct. Uh, anyway, um, he'll tell us all about uh, places like uh, Sydney, Australia, and the creatures that inhabit uh, that that wonderful city, and some of the ghosts that haunt uh, the Kremlin in in Moscow, and uh, the ghosts uh, that come out of Halifax after the uh, the 1917 explosion, and on and on and on. Nick Redfern, uh, in just a few moments. But I got to tell you, I love my my job. I have a real ritual when I come into the radio station. The first thing I do is I go to the the mail bunk. And um, you can imagine hosting the conspiracy show. I get some interesting mail, to be sure. I had a, a, a wonderful invite here to um, a, a UFO symposium from uh, a good friend of the program, Paula Harris, a UFO journalist. She's um, taking part in this symposium down in Sebring, Florida, May 10th to the 12th, 2013. So I'm, I'm hoping I can get down there. And uh, um, I see uh, Stan Romanek and Paul Hellyer, the former deputy prime minister of this country, um, was uh, is is now a um, interested in UFOs. Anyway, uh, also an email from a, a letter from a woman who claims that she's a victim of electronic harassment. Of course, we just had an episode on the uh, the TV show about that as well. Uh, anyway, having said that, uh, it's time to uh, to talk about this wonderful weird planet and the world's weirdest places. He's back with another book, and I believe this is number 23 or 24, but who's keeping score? It's all good. They're all good, and he's delivered another remarkable uh, read. Uh, This one is entitled The World's Weirdest Places, and uh, joining me on the line from his home in the, I believe he's still in the great state of Texas, Nick Redfern is an author, lecturer, journalist. He writes uh, books about unsolved mysteries. His previous books include The Pyramids and the Pentagon, Keep Out, The Real Men in Black, The NASA Conspiracies, Contactees, and Memories of a Monster Hunter. He writes for UFO Magazine, Fate, and Fortean Times, and has appeared on the History Channel's Ancient Aliens, Monster Quest, and UFO Hunters. And always a delight to welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, Nick Redfern. Hey, Nick, how are you? Hi, Richard. I'm doing good, thanks. How's things? Wonderful, wonderful. Are you still in Texas, by the way? I'm still in sunny, hot Texas. Well, I say sunny, hot Texas. Today it's uh, grey skies and been raining all weekend. So. Now, how does a Brit who covers the UFO beat and uh, uh, unsolved mysteries end up in Texas, which you know is a is a, is a country unto itself? Really, <laughs> that's true. Um, well, actually, um, I, I first came over back in 1998 um, during conferences and lectures. But from 2001 till about 2005, I was actually contracted um, by an author to do research for him, and it was pretty much like on a full-time basis. And so it was like the ideal time to to sort of do this work, you know, and to and to be over here. And because it was such a long-term thing, you know, I sort of basically did the official move and um, and settled over here. So. And are you finding enough weirdness in Texas to keep you busy? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff. Ghosts, the Texas Chupacabra, there's Bigfoot reports on the east side of Texas, which is sort of heavily forested and wooded. 
um, Lake Monster stories. You know, it's actually not that, <laughs> that not that different from where I came from originally in England, Rita. Temperature aside, of course. Right, right. <laughs> so the wor- world's weirdest places, and here you've compiled uh, what you consider the top 25 uh, uh, strange places and the, uh, the the ghosts, vampires, aliens, lake monsters, and strange energies that inhabit these places. Uh, let's start in the United States. Uh, I, I've been back and forth to California a number of times over the last couple of years and uh, spent some time at least driving through the Mojave Desert, otherwise known as Death Valley. What's going on there, uh, aside from the fact that this is an incredibly desolate, hot uh, a place and, and dangerous if you're if you're not properly fueled up. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Death Valley isn't called Death Valley, you know, for no reason. It, it is one of these places. You're quite right. You know, if you go out there and you're not prepared, you know, in terms of water, food, um, cover, you know, just to protect yourself from the heat and the sun, you can get in big trouble. You know, if you're out there for a long time. And um, Death Valley is one of these places which I talk about in the book, which basically is like the book's a study of 25 places all around the world which are kind of like definitive hot spots for for just strange phenomena and certainly death valley um is for me at least you know very near the top of the list there are actually several weird things that are going on or have gone on over the years within death valley um one of the strangest is it's probably its most well-known mystery which is the mystery of the sailing stones and um this is a story that goes back as long as people have been in the area, which you know is literally centuries. Um, and all across certain parts of Death Valley, um, people have stumbled upon these large stones and rocks that have a trail behind them. In some cases, going on for miles, where it's quite clear that the stones have moved. You know, they've just sort of travelled along. It's almost like you know the, the track of a of a snail or something like that. You know or a a car tire in the mud. Um, And, of course, people said, well, how on earth, you know, are these these stones moving? And there are a lot of interesting theories with regard to, you know, what may be going on. There's, you know, the down-to-earth theory is that because the the desert is very dry, but they have these sudden out-of-the-blue rainstorms, that you get like a thin veneer of water on top of the hard desert. And then when the wind blows through, it blows the stones along and they then start propelling under their own motion, if you like, on the water. The problem is some of these stones that have got these trails behind them um, are like 150, 160 pounds. And despite all the experiments that have been done to try and prove this theory, nobody successfully managed to get one of these 140 or 50 pound stones moving under its own power just with the wind and a bit of water, you know, beneath it. So, you know, that in itself is... is um, is kind of intriguing. Um, some people have suggested maybe there could be sort of underground energies going on. And that is made all the more intriguing as well because there are a lot of stories about, um, particularly in the 20s and 30s, real-life Indiana Jones-type characters who supposedly stumbled upon underground chambers in this very same area of Death Valley. Howard where Hill. They, what's that? Howard Hill. Exactly, Howard Hill, yes, um, where they reportedly found um, sort of ancient chambers and hollowed out areas that seemed to contain things like um, like America, ancient American equivalents of things like, you know, Roman statues and Greek statues and pillars, as if there was some sort of very ancient American cultural civilization thousands of years ago that and 
certain evidence of it, you know, still existed in these deep caverns. And, um, you know, there may not be a connection, but on the other hand, the fact that these stones sail across the deserts in the very same area as where these stories of these underground um, ancient civilizations are coming from, you know, it's, uh, it sort of adds to the mystique and the, the mystery of the area. Now, Howard Hill worked with the, uh, the L.A. transportation... Um, uh... Yeah. No, no, he spoke before the L.A. Transportation That's Club. Right, yeah. And and what did he tell them? Uh, he 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 met these figures down there. Uh, what what did he tell them about about these these people he met? Yeah, sure. Well, basically, I mean, there are a number of stories told in this sort of period, the 30s and 40s. But without doubt, you know, the most I would say certainly the most significant one came from this guy named Howard Hill. Um, as you said, he, he was from Los Angeles. He spoke in 1947 to the city's transportation club and he told basically a story of a Dr. F. Bruce Russell who was a physician but also like um, like a, like a part-time amateur um, archaeologist who had heard a lot of stories about complex tunnels deep below Death Valley and so Russell decided with a colleague and friend to go out there and check it all out for themselves and reportedly they found, actually stumbled across, um, you know, some of these big extensive tunnels below the valley. And they reportedly they found the remains of uh, so-called giant men, several gigantic men about nine feet high. Um, and it is probably quite apt to say they actually stumbled across this particular underground cavern, if you like, because one of them who was sort of digging a sinkhole in the air at the time actually sort of the ground gave way beneath him and luckily he didn't fall too far but it's like a 15 feet fall you know it sort of severely winded him and um, luckily he didn't break any limbs but um, when they got down there they reportedly as I said found you know what sag almost like an Egyptian horde you know you can't imagine something along those lines um, and Howard Hill was a friend of theirs and they confided in him and then he decided to sort of blow the whistle on aspects of the story but what the big irony is that nobody for the most part in the media or the scientific community believed Hill and he offered to take them to the place and invite uh, in, uh, introduce them to the people um, but they all said no you know this is nonsense we're not going to look into it and Hill was like well you know it's your loss and what was interesting is that um, Russell said he was going to go back and you know check this area out and supposedly he did but he never again spoke about this you know so we don't really know exactly what he found but the mere fact that he he didn't speak about it you know in itself is kind of intriguing didn't he describe the the dress of these individuals he met down there as sort of uh resembling freemason regalia yeah th this is sort of a very strange story a uh, part of the story i should say um they were talking about these these beings, these sort of nine-foot-tall beings, dressed in, when I say jackets and pants, they weren't actually talking about, you know, like regular things you'd wear in the city to work or something, but they were talking about what looked like a, like a two-piece outfit, you know, um, but not of sort of cloth-type material, but more of almost, I won't say like a flight suit, but, you know, if you imagine like a, just a regular type of leather jacket or something like that, um, and, and sort of well-fitting pants, that kind of thing. Um, but they appeared to be made out of the hides of animals, but done in a very sort of skillful way. You're not sort of cavemen strung together or anything like that. It was sort of more of a, of a skillful way. Um, 
But he said that, um, Howard Hill said that when um, Russell went in there and this colleague of his, Bovey, um, they came across this gigantic hall, uh, which was sort of buried within inside these caverns. And what was interesting, there were various devices and carvings on the walls, which actually eerily paralleled almost to the point of being identical to certain Masonic symbols, um, which, you know, sort of provoked and opened the idea that there was a, a Masonic link, possibly with some sort of ancient civilization in, in the Americas. And reportedly, they uh, also found the bones and the remains of things like um, saber-toothed tigers and mammoths, which did, you know, thousands of years ago, roam the United States. And um, so in that sense, you know, it all fitted in time-wise with an ancient civilization. And, uh, and it does sort of really provoke kind of Indiana Jones-type imagery, if you like. Absolutely. Nick Redfern is with us, the author of The World's Weirdest Places. We'll come back. We'll talk about uh, a little closer to home here in the great city of Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, and a sea serpent that is said to uh, inhabit Mahone Bay. And then, farther afield, to the Kremlin and uh, uh, some wonderful ghost stories around Red Square. Back with more of my conversation with Nick Redfern here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we're back with uh, Nick Redfern uh, talking about the world's weirdest places. Uh, Nick, one of my favorite cities in Halifax, out in the Maritimes, uh, sorry, one of my favorite cities in Canada is Halifax, out in the Maritimes, the capital of Nova Scotia. Have you been? Yeah, I actually have. I have a good friend who lives there named Paul Kimball. Um, Paul's sort of a fellow researcher, you know, into Unsolved Mysteries, and um, we hang out now and again. And um, I went up there in 2006, and, um, and Paul basically showed me all around the area. We had, I was up there for like a weekend, four or five days, and... Um, he showed me all around the area and, the, you know, talked about the history and the culture. And I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it kind of re reminded me of England, Halifax. It's sort of, you know, one of these old towns with a pub on every corner. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like a, a cool little place to hang out. So I had a great time there. Right, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not as old as uh, a lot of cities in Europe, but it certainly has uh, that character, as you say. Uh, yeah, it but, does. Uh -huh. but going back to, let's say, the mid-18th uh, century, there have been uh, uh, stories of this... Uh, serpentine-like creature that um, is said to inhabit Mahone Bay and St. Margaret's Bay. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, you can find anywhere, well, I won't say anywhere, but most places in the world, you know, they have legends of things like sea serpents. Um, and certainly Halifax is no different. There, when I was looking into the history of sort of the weird stuff, you know, going on there, that was one of the things that was really sort of prevalent sort of around about 150, 160 years ago. Um, certainly less so today. You know, that doesn't mean people aren't seeing them, but we're not certainly getting as many reports as we were, you know, back then. But, I mean, in terms of, you know, the, what people were reporting, they were like the classic types of encounters, you know, that go, exist throughout history and folklore, sort of like large serpent, snake-like creatures, you know, that would sort of surf along the um, the waters. Actually, extremely close, you know, when we talk about the bay, I mean, we're talking about, you know, within full view of people on the land, so to speak. I mean, one of the most famous ones from 1833, this actually involved a, a British naval ship, um, and they saw this creature, which was actually near Mahone Bay and St. Margaret's Bay, 
and all the crew on board, you know, it wasn't just sort of one or two, the entire crew sort of watched in amazement at this creature, which is about 150 yards or so from them, and it had this huge head and neck sticking out the water, and these large sort of bulbous, glassy eyes, and of course, you know, nobody knew what it was at all. And then the, the next uh, sort of most famous one, which came approximately 20 years later, reported by a guy named Peter McNabb, um, he saw a very similar creature near McNabb's Island, uh, which was described as being about 20 feet long. Um, so this was obviously smaller than the other one, but I mean, you know, the mere fact that we've got several reports in that precise same area suggests there was some sort of, you know, uh, population or, or something going on there, if you like. And, and the, more, the, mo- the most recent sightings uh, of this creature would be when? Um, well, the, the most recent ones I've got are actually from the 1960s, so we're talking quite a long time ago. But in saying that, you know, I mean, there's, there's no real reason why we would necessarily expect these creatures to remain in one place, you know, all the time. I mean, their, their entire, anything that's in the sea, you know, it's, it's derived its existence from, from basically just seeking out food wherever it can get it and surviving. So, you know, large creatures like this, they're going to require a lot of food, you know, to sort of fuel their massive... nomadic creatures, you know, that would be constantly on the move, kind of like sharks do at times, you know. And the descriptions uh, of this creature uh, similar to, uh, let's say, uh, Loch Ness or or Champion, Lake Champlain, Um, New York? Actually, in some ways they are, because they have this sort of classic, typical long neck. But where they differ is that many of the lake monsters are described as having like a very thick, muscular, humped back. Whereas the sea serpents are more like a classic large snake in the sense, you know, there's no bulbous spinal area and, and large body, torso. They're just, you know, just long like a snake or an eel. And of course, this has actually given rise to one particular theory that, you know, could they be just gigantic eels? Now, you know, I mean, it may not see, sound as exciting as, and as romantic as, you know, like a uh, surviving dinosaur, but... In the um, English North Sea, divers have reported seeing conger eels of about 12 to 15 feet long, you know, which is pretty large. Um, so if in other parts of the world, you know, there are eels that reach 30 to 40 feet with bodies the size of oil drums, I don't think most people would probably quibble that that would be like a sea monster, you know, if you're faced with it up close and personal. Um, so, you know, I, I guess... There are a lot of differences between, you know, the reported sightings and and lake monsters in terms of the description, but they do have that one thing in common, which is sort of the classic long neck and the small head that kind of, you know, sits on top of this huge neck. That, that's the one characteristic. The heads are often quite small. The other uh, um, uh, unfortunate incident uh, that... Um, is the reason that many people know about Halifax is, of course, the the uh, the cataclysmic uh, collision of two ships. One was a a whaling supply ship, and another yeah. was a French freighter, and it, it caused a huge uh, explosion. And and um, I think something like two thousand people were killed, and and probably twice that many were injured, uh, and and destroyed many buildings in Halifax. Yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, that was 
you know, for, for such a, a, a small place, or relatively small place, you know, Halifax has had a lot of weird stuff and tragedies that all sort of combined together. But, uh, yeah, you're right, this was in December 1917, and um, Halifax, in its harbour, um, there were two, on this one particular day, December the 6th, there were two um, ships, a French freighter called the Mont Blanc, and the IMO, which was a whaling ship, and they collided. And in a worst-case scenario, the Mont Blanc actually had on board um, a large amount of TNT, of explosives. And, of course, you know, when the two ships collo- uh, collided, there was just this gigantic explosion. And um, you're right, it was roughly around about 2,000 people were killed. Actually, more than 1,500 buildings were just sort of flattened. You know, it was almost like the equivalent of a an atomic bomb going off, you know, it was just a gigantic explosion. Um, and, of course, you know, with all these thousands of people killed, um, you know, many of the bodies were just obliterated, you know, they just were vaporized, literally. Um, but obviously, of course, you know, a significant number of bodies survived, and um, some were taken um, to various mortuaries around town. One of them, um, which was a, sort of an early and significant mortuary in the in the town of Halifax, um, is actually a restaurant today called the Five Fishermen, and the Five Fishermen has a long history of both staff and customers seeing people or sort of spectral type people kind of gliding through the the old hotel, uh, the old building, um, dressed in sort of like early 20th century, late 19th century clothing, and it's sort of given rise to the theory that at least some of the people whose bodies were taken to the Five Fishermen prior to it being a restaurant when it was a mortuary, you know, there could be a tie in there. Um, you know, we saw like another paranormal thing going on in Halifax. And and uh, there is uh, another rather spooky fixture of Halifax, you point out, um, uh, that was one of the victims of this horrific blast, and yes. she's known as the Grey Nun who haunts the Victoria General Hospital. Tell me about her. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, when you talk about sort of a Grey Nun haunting a hospital, it kind of puts like an ominous tone on it. You know, you imagine this sort of... Um, sort of gliding cloaked figure, you know, roaming the corridors. But it's actually far more benevolent. She's described as actually being sort of very helpful, friendly type ghost. And supposedly that she sort of appears around those people who are sort of, you know, in a terminal state for who unfortunately there's no, you know, there's no way back. And But a number of people in that situation have talked about seeing this sort of spectral nun hovering around and reportedly it's given them like a sense of peace you know and tranquility and the idea that everything's going to be okay so you know it's not like you would imagine sort of a a ghostly nun you know like some shrieking specter it's more of like a a helpful character if you like that sort of transitions people through one state to another yes because apparently she does have the ability to show up when uh, death is near. Is, is uh, she visits yeah, that, people when yeah. they're in their when they're in their final stages? I guess. Yeah. So that terminal point, you know, where there is no well, there is no point of return, you know. And um, but doctors and nurses have been told these stories, you know. Well, who was that woman that came to see me? You know, and they said, well, no woman's come to see you. And you know, they've said, well, yes, you know, they had it was a this sort of nun-like character in the corner of the room who told me everything was going to be okay and not to worry, etc. And and then, of course, you know, all the staff know these stories. So over time, you know, a lot of believers have been made out of the hospital staff who were perhaps a little bit skeptical beforehand. 
Nick Redfern is with us, the author of The World's Weirdest Places. Is there a common denominator, do you think, to all of these these uh, locations? We'll, we'll talk about more as the hour progresses, and yeah. we'll get into uh, Moscow and, and, and the Red Square and the ghosts there. But is is there an underlying common denominator that makes these places, well, so weird? Yeah. Well, I actually think there is, Richard. I mean, from my perspective, you know, the, the thrust of the book is not just a study of 25 weird places, but it also addresses why they're weird, you know, which is an important question. Why is it certain areas of the planet seem to be just total hotspots for everything from UFO encounters, Bigfoot, lake monsters, sea serpents, ghosts, paranormal activity, occult activity, etc.? And one of the things that I focus on is what John Keel used to call window areas, the idea that there could be sort of portals and doorways on our world, on our planet, um, that sort of opened almost like a rift to other realities, other dimensions, and that possibly at least some of these entities and strange phenomena kind of come through these doorways briefly into our world, and then they're gone again, and, you know, they're not come back at a later time. I guess the the most famous examples would be like um, Point Pleasant in West Virginia where you had all the Mothman and strange encounters of UFOs and ghostly activity in the mid-60s that John Keel chronicled in The Mothman Prophecies or somewhere like the Bermuda Triangle, you know, where people talked about that being kind of a a hotspot. So what I've tried to do is not just chronicle the places but to come up with explanations that might offer some understanding as to why they exist, you know, with these sort of rifts and doorways opening to other realms or whatever. Any connection to ley lines, these ancient uh, mm. lines supposedly that, uh, that I guess, connect ancient, ancient sites and have some sort of uh, energy contained within them? Well, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing because ley lines are sort of these reported energy areas or lines that, you know, that spread all across the entire planet and supposedly ancient man knew something about how this particular energy could be harnessed if you understood the you know the power of the the planet itself they were sort of described as like earth energies but you know you could derive um power from and there's absolutely no doubt that you know certain significant places where a lot of mysteries happen are on ley lines i mean for example um, Stonehenge and the famous Avebury Stones, both of which are in the county of Wiltshire in England. You know, Wiltshire is just crisscrossed with a mass, absolute mass of ley lines. And of course, Wiltshire is also where most of the crop circles appear every year. So, you know, I think ancient man knew something about these portals, these energy lines, and that somehow I think there's a combination or a cross you know, a crossover between the two. So, um, you know, we, we sort of, we're getting the answers, I think, but it's sort of a case that, ironically, although we're more technologically advanced than ancient man, I think they were more sort of spiritually advanced in understanding things like earth energies and these other realms that many people today just write them off as nonsense, you know. All right, let's take a quick time out. When we come back, over to the Kremlin in Moscow, where the ghosts of Ivan the Terrible, Vladimir Lenin, and Joseph Stalin, no less, are all said to roam the old corridors and rooms of the Kremlin. Back with more of my conversation with Nick Redfern here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us.
In search of sunken cities and weird science, mythical beasts, and modern-day bloodsuckers. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett continues. We're back with Nick Redfern. Uh, Nick, we head now over to uh, the Red Square and St. Basil's uh, Cathedral, uh, inside of which, of course, uh, of course stands... Uh, a somewhat ominous-looking uh, building. Of course, we all have memories of the Cold War and those May Day parades and all of the weaponry and, 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 and the show of force. But uh, no question uh, that the Kremlin is a, is a majestic and certainly an historic structure. Uh, very old and uh, a lot of ghost stories, I'm sure, there. Yeah, the, the, the Kremlin actually dates back to the 12th century the, when the, you know, the original foundations of the, you know, the original version of it. And it's basically kind of like you know, the Russian equivalent of the White House. It's sort of the official residence of the Soviet, or the, excuse me, the Russian premier um, today, obviously, uh, Vladimir Putin. And so, you know, it, it basically carries out the same task, and et cetera, as the White House does. Um, but um, the, the Kremlin's an interesting place because, again, you know, it's somewhere that's a hotbed for just outright weirdness of, you know, a whole wide range. And as you pointed out, I mean, one of the things that really sort of typifies the Kremlin when it comes to the paranormal stakes, if you like, is the sort of immense amount of ghostly activity that goes on there. And um, the one of one of the sort of the most um, the famous stories um, is uh, relates to Vladimir Lenin. Um, you know, he's one of the most um, sort of well known, I guess, of the the, the uh, previous Soviet premiers. And um, the biggest irony is about the, the sightings of Lenin's ghost is that the first one actually was made or occurred when he was still alive, which kind of sounds strange, but this occurred in the early 1920s. Um, at the time, Lenin was actually extremely seriously ill, and he, he actually didn't live for very much longer anyway. But um, at the time, he was at his own private um, house um, in, in, in Gorky. Um, of course, he's being watched over by doctors and soldiers, etc., etc. There was a point in that period when he wasn't expected to live at all. Um, but what was weird is that, you know, although he had this house in Gorky where he was pretty much on his deathbed at the time, um, personnel out at the Kremlin, you know, where he obviously usually worked from, they reported seeing him sort of striding down the corridors of the Kremlin, looking very vibrant and healthy, when they knew that he should have been on his deathbed in Gorky so you know uh, a call was quickly placed um, to you know his doctor who said well I'm looking at him he's in the bed here you know he, there's no way he could walk six feet never mind stroll down the corridors of the Kremlin um, and one of the theories that was put forward was that possibly you know his subconscious realizing that he was soon to die he wanted to have one last tour of the Kremlin and you know his sort of his soul or his essence or however you want to term it sort of let you know had like an out of body experience and uh, you know sort of manifested within the kremlin itself now um the i guess the second most famous story or series of stories relate to joseph stalin who um ruled from uh, the early 1940s to the early to mid 1950s um in the soviet union and there are a lot of stories uh, of people seeing um, Stalin's ghost all around the Kremlin but they're all sort of typified by one thing that as soon as he sort of manifests or appears the temperature drops massively and noticeably um, well he was pretty ruthless and cold maybe that was <laughs> that has something to do with it <laughs> well that, yeah that might be reflected in death you know how he was in life 
but yeah, I mean, people talk about this a lot in ghostly encounters or haunted homes, um, you know, where you have these, ironically, you know, you can call them hot spots, but they should be like icy cold spots, I guess, um, you know, where the temperature just really drops in an area that's maybe sort of six to ten feet long or wide, and then as you pass through it, you know, it's normal again. And a lot of these sort of situations occur where Stalin's ghosts have been seen. And there's also things like um, poltergeist activity with doors slamming and tables moving and, and things like that. And, um, you know, those reports are kind of more unsettling, whereas, um, you know, Lenin just kind of appears or materializes and then has gone. The, the cases involving Stalin are sort of far more perceived as like threatening or or traumatic for you know for the witness so to speak certainly uh i want to get into this now we're going to take a break in a couple minutes here but uh uh you know we're all familiar with area 51 you've you've written about it talked about it extensively but it appears that uh moscow may have its own area 51 of sorts at least that part of that aspect of area 51 which involves the housing of of uh, ufo uh, crash debris and perhaps alien bodies but this area 51 uh may in fact be deep under in an underground chamber right below the kremlin tell me about that yeah well a lot of people don't realize you know that most well i won't say most i'd say all you know advanced nations particularly at the height of the cold war when they realized how much destruction would be wrought if there was like an atomic war you know a third world war but all nations started building massive underground chambers and there's actually like a, a very large fortified bunker underneath the white house you know a lot of people don't realize that um, you know, in the event of a catastrophic strike on on the nation's capital, and it's the same with the Kremlin in Russia. Um, but you know, in the 19 early 1950s through the 60s, extensive digging was done underneath Moscow in the event you know that the the city was taken out in a nuclear attack, and the plan was you know to have these huge chambers like 200 feet underground, you know, huge metal doors, fortified concrete you know, with circulating air, food and water, etc., you know, to survive for months. Um, and certainly there's a, there's a huge bunker, gigantic bunker, um, beneath the Kremlin. Okay, let me just um, jump in here, Nick, because we'll okay. take a time out when we come back. We'll, uh, okay. we'll delve further into uh, the Kremlin's Area 51. Nick Redfern, the world's weirdest places here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. We're back. A few minutes remain uh, with Nick Redfern, the author of The World's Most Weirdest Places. And we're talking about this uh, underground chamber that lies beneath the Kremlin in, uh, in Moscow. And rumors that it may house, in fact, uh, aliens, uh, perhaps uh, UFO crash debris. Is there a connection to Roswell? Well, you know, I mean, it's one of these situations where, although, you know, when you think of crashed UFOs, everybody thinks of Roswell but you know reports like this have surfaced over the years from all corners of the globe and certainly in terms of the Russians you know they've had a number um, of reports of crashed UFOs pretty much all across you know from one side of the other two of the former Soviet Union um, one of the most interesting ones actually occurred in 1947 or this object was found in 47 which, of course, you know, was the year in which the flying saucer wave began and, you know, the term flying saucer was coined. But the story relates to um, when, after the sort of destruction of the Second World War, the Russians started to try and, you know, rebuild some of their 
destroyed or partially destroyed cities, one of them being Kiev, where supposedly workers who were sort of you know, clearing away all the rubble and the ruined buildings found this almost like a cigar-shaped object about 20 feet long, deep underground, um, which was described as being sort of a silvery color, um, just totally smooth, you know, no evidence of welding or anything like that at all. And, of course, they realized that whatever it was, it, you know, it wasn't just some sort of normal object. The first concern, of course, was, you know, was it some sort of missile or a bomb? So a military team was brought in to examine it. They realized that, you know, this wasn't anything like a, a German bomb or even, you know, an Allied bomb, anything like that at all. So it was reportedly taken to somewhere northeast of Moscow, where a lot of um, sort of early... Russian research was done into things, you know, like rocketry and um, aviation, etc. Um, they kind of examined it and um, came to believe something pretty startling that there were marks on it and the the evidence of sort of decay, etc., suggested that this thing had been buried not since '47 when it was discovered, but possibly for literally thousands of years. And Supposedly, the story is that, you know, it was taken to various places, um, kind of like Russian equivalents of Area 51, where it could be studied. And then eventually, because of its perceived value, was stored um, in one of these vast bunkers below the Kremlin. And occasionally, you know, as new scientific discoveries are and, and made, and if, or if there's a new scientist who can possibly add, you know, something to the investigation, they kind of bring them into the program and show them what's there and then basically say, um, you know, um, you, is there anything you can add to the investigation, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and do it that way. So Now, one of the, uh, the strangest creatures uh, to exist anywhere is said to inhabit a beautiful city on the other side of the world, and that is in Sydney, Australia. Uh, what can you tell us about this creature that some have described as an elephant walking on its hind legs? Yeah, this is uh, this is sort of a very uh, weird story. I mean, you know, you, you get weird stories anywhere, but this one is sort of like a, a definitively strange story. Um, again, like a lot of these places, you know, Sydney has UFO reports, Bigfoot reports, Lake Monster reports, but um, this one, the creature that's described in this particular story, um, it really kind of doesn't sound like anything I've ever come across before. It's like a typical one-off. But um, it occurred um, in a, a suburb of Sydney, which is called Narrabeen. And it was in 1968 when a woman um, was driving home and saw, you, you, if you imagine sort of driving down this road, which is sort of surrounded on all sides by like a lagoon. Um, and as she was driving along, she saw, saw this strange creature come out of the water and it was described as being around four feet tall and it sort of had this weird almost comical shuffling motion um had this leathery gray skin not unlike actually you know the sort of rough skin that you see on an elephant which was interesting because it had um it had this sort of like a slim trunk very similar to like an anteater crossed with an elephant but it had these long back legs and these two short legs at the front. You know, you kind of imagine if you had a pet dog and, you know, you're standing on his hind legs and the front limbs kind of just hang, you know, short. Uh, it's kind of, sort of like that. But it seemed to just walk normally, you know, as if walking on two legs was its normal movement, which, of course, you know, for an anteater or an elephant, it certainly isn't. And there shouldn't be either, uh, excuse me, there shouldn't be elephants, you know, wandering around Australia at all. Um, 
and certainly not four feet tall, but the woman stood by her story and said, you know, there's, look, there's, this is what I saw. You know, I was really close to her. I slowed the car down, I even had the window open. And this thing just sort of, when it saw her, it just bounded away. But, you know, she was adamant. It was like a four feet tall bipedal creature with a, like a long, slim trunk, you know. And uh, how we explain that is, well, the best I can say is we don't explain it, except for the fact that the witness stood by the story, you know, permanently. And it's interesting, as you point out, in uh, the world's weirdest places, that around the same time that this monster of Narrabeen was seen, there were also uh, UFO sightings uh, at that same time and in the same location, in Narrabeen. So is there some connection, do you think, between this creature and UFOs? Well, that's the interesting thing, is that, you know, often where we get strange creature reports, we get other anomalous phenomena as well. Um, Now, of course... People who are sort of strict, straightforward UFO researchers don't like to sort of, you know, have their territory invaded on by Bigfoot and lake monsters and cryptozoologists, people who look for weird creatures. They say, well, there's no connection with UFOs and Bigfoot. Bigfoot's just a a missing ape or a giant ape that science hasn't classified. So what we have happen is that very often these cases aren't um, deeply investigated because neither side once their belief systems challenge as to what's going on, which becomes a big problem. Uh, but for me, you know, when we repeatedly see stories and cases where, for example, you know, Bigfoot has been seen at the same place as a UFO, and this occurs all around the world, then I think we've got to look at the bigger picture that something else is going on. And Sydney is a classic example that, you know, where this small creature, this long trunk was seen. We've had reports of UFOs hovering above um, you know, flitting in and out the woods, and again, like the creature, you know, they were here one minute and gone the next. So, you know, again, that makes it, um, you know, it's problematic in finding them, but intriguing in the sense that it's like a pattern developing that we're seeing everywhere. And you mentioned Bigfoot, and of course, Australia has its own version. They call it the Yowie, and and yeah. uh, there are, uh, we have, you know, the the, uh, the Native American legends here. Uh, there, we have the uh, the Aboriginal legends and their encounters with Yowie. What can you mm-hmm. tell me about Australia's Sasquatch? Well, yeah, I mean, as you said, it's called the Yowie, but it's described as pretty much the same as the American Bigfoot in the sense it's sort of a six to eight foot tall ape-like creature. But what sort of, I won't say it sets itself totally aside from Bigfoot because there are some weird stuff, uh, stories about Bigfoot, but the Yowie does actually come across as far more like a, a supernatural creature. Uh, the native um, Australian Aborigines, for example, they have it, in their excuse me, in their cultures and stories and legends, and they describe it as like a spirit type creature that was sort of connected to the nature of the planet itself, um, rather than just being a regular animal. You know, it was perceived as having the ability to, you know, exist in our realm uh, and others. You know, it sort of was described as coming in from other magical realms of existence, and um, the native um, Aborigines, you know, sort of. Uh, lived in reverence of it and um, realized that there was something strange about it. And a lot of the Yarra reports today still fall into those categories where people have said, you know, they've they've seen it in the woods and it's faded away or it's flashed out like in the the blink of an eye or a flash of light, um, which, of course, regular animals cannot do. Um, So for me, I think, again, this is evidence that we're dealing with something, the Yarra and possibly the, the American Bigfoot, that may look just like an ape that science hasn't classified yet, 
But when you dig further into it, we do find, you know, that the fact that it's so elusive to the point of being ridiculous, you know, we should be able to, in a city the size of Sydney, capture at least one eight-foot-tall ape if they're roaming around. You know, we're not talking about a little thing the size of a mouse, a mouse, you know, but we're just not catching them. And that's the same everywhere. That's the thing that typifies all these ape-men stories from around the world is that they're overwhelmingly 100% elusive which again tends to uh suggest or legitimize the theory that part of the the yowie or bigfoot phenomena is wrapped up in in some sort of interdimensional type thing yeah. where they as you say they're flitting in and out of our plane of existence and therefore they are uh, elusive yeah you're right and i think you know that the problem is a lot of cryptozoologists get quite defensive if you dare say that it's anything other than just an ape, you know, and so unfortunately a lot of these stories get under-reported and under-investigated you know, the witnesses feel they're going to get ridiculed the researchers don't want to touch that sort of stuff, you know, it's like an anathema to the, you know, the regular cryptozoologist. Oh sure, yes they'll only go so far, I mean even getting them to admit to the possibility of the existence of one of these creatures is one thing once you start getting into the interdimensional realities and the possibility that they could be psychic or they're connected to the UFO phenomena, they just back out of the room slowly. Yeah. Uh, Nick, very quickly, we've got about two minutes, do you have a, a favorite uh, a weird place on this globe? Um, yeah, I mean, maybe this would be sort of one that would be, you know, um, I guess sort of, t- sort of t- a typical example because it's not too far from where I grew up, and that would be Loch Ness in Scotland. Um, now, you know, whenever anybody thinks of Loch Ness, you know, they think, of course, of the Loch Ness monster, which is understandable, you know, because the story is well known and goes back centuries. Actually, the earliest report we have is like a thousand years, but a lot of people don't realise that. Loch Ness isn't just weird because of the Loch Ness Monster. Um, the famous occultist Alistair Crowley actually had a house on the shores of Loch Ness called Beleskin House, where he reportedly in the 1910s tried to conjure up demons from the loch. And this, uh, this house, Beleskin House, was actually owned in later years by Jimmy Page, the guitarist with Led Zeppelin, and he also said he had this sort of unsettling atmosphere. But there have also been reports of men in black encounters at the loch, some classic UFO encounters um, actually over the water. Uh, people have reported seeing large black cats, like so-called black panthers as they've become known, sort of prowling around the shores. And there have even been reports of different types of creatures in the loch. You know, you have the classic long-necked, Nessie-type reports that people talk about. Other people have said they've seen a creature that looks like a giant frog, sort of seven to eight foot long, sort of bulbous round creature. So, you know, that, that for me is one of the most intriguing places because Loch Ness, you know, it, it's a large loch, yeah, it's like 22 miles long, but it's dominated by a, high, a wide range of phenomena of a paranormal nature that goes far beyond just the Loch Ness Monster. Well, for an enigmatologist uh, like you, that's like one-stop shop, one stop shopping <laughs> right there at Loch Ness. Exactly, Listen, yeah. Uh, Nick, congratulations on another fine uh, piece of literature, The World's Weirdest Places, uh, um, available at uh, Amazon.com and uh, finer bookstores everywhere. What's next, very quickly? Well, actually, I've got a new book out towards the end of the year, which is called Monster Diary. And that will be published by Anomalous Books. And it's basically um, my sort of cryptozoological research, which is my other big interest. You know, I sort of do that road trip style, going on the road looking for these things. And that's how I sort of write up those investigations. And that's what this book will be. It's sort of a write-up of my last three years of 
on the road stuff in search of Bigfoot, the Chupacabra, Mothman, and things like that. Ah, can't wait, and we'll have you back on when that's right, uh, when that's available to book buyers. Nick, thanks for this. All right, thanks, Richard. I appreciate having me on. Thank you. Nick Redfern, The World's Weirdest Places, back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for that. The, coming up on the show, The Race for a Time Machine, plus uh, Brad Steiger, our uh, paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, returns to the program, and we'll learn about a very interesting fellow down in uh, South America in Brazil who has supposedly remarkable healing powers, John of God. Hope you'll be along for those shows and more. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known, which you hear in the dark. Speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.